Episode one of On the Line. I'm Rachel. And I'm Hussein. For our inaugural episode of On the Line, we want to introduce ourselves and the show just a little bit. I mean, really, we're just a group of young, working class people with a commitment to and vision for building a militant, fighting labor movement in the United States today. We've worked for unions, we've helped form unions at our own workplaces and elsewhere, and we've been out on the picket lines time and time again to support working class people fighting for dignity and respect on the job. But not only that, we're organizers in our community too, bridging the connections between labor, neighborhood, domestic, and international struggles. On the Line is a show to highlight a real people's history and struggle-oriented perspective of what's happening on the ground in workplaces and sectors across the U.S. Whether we're on the assembly line, on the phone line, or on the picket line, you'll always find us on the line. So we've got some important business to get to. United Educators of San Francisco recently ratified a contract in which they secured record raises. We'll be joined by Natalie Hreezy, who's the VP of Substitutes of UESF, to not only talk about the details of the victory and what was won, but how the participation of thousands of educators made it possible. The UAW, or the United Auto Workers, just last Thursday was the latest and perhaps the largest and most significant union to call for a ceasefire amid Israel's genocidal campaign against Palestine. We'll be joined by Desmond Fonseca, who is a graduate student researcher and teaching assistant in the history department at UCLA, member of UAW 2865, and a member of the steering committee of Western States Organizing for Power, to discuss the significance of the resolution and how the labor movement can be a vehicle to wage fights not only for justice on the job, but also around crucial political issues facing workers and society as a whole. Now, I am so excited to introduce our first guest ever here on the line to talk with us about the fight of educators in San Francisco to win a historic contract and strengthen their union. Natalie Hreezy is the Vice President of Substitutes of the United Educators of San Francisco, or UESF. Natalie has been an active site leader in UESF for the past 17 years. That is amazing. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's very exciting to be here with you both. First of all, congratulations. And, you know, we are just so excited to have you here on the show to talk more about this fight. Um, So, you know, as we've mentioned, UESF recently ratified a record agreement and it was secured through what I would imagine was, you know, a seriously involved organizing effort of educators, of thousands of educators. And I say educators because the union covers not just teachers, but paraeducators, psychologists, nurses, social workers, and counselors. Um, So tell us a little bit about this fight, Natalie. You know, what were some of the main issues that drove this fight forward and what was achieved through your fight? Yeah, so United Educators of San Francisco represents um, just about 6,000 educators, uh, the vast majority of which are here in San Francisco Unified School District. Um, and we had a contract that expired in 2020. And then, as you, I mean, as you both well know, 
when the pandemic hit, it just disrupted everything. So even though we were in contract negotiations, we were not able to complete those contract negotiations and all our bargaining became about the pandemic. And so the, the last negotiations was a very short extension of that contract. And we headed into this knowing that our contract would expire in June, um, in June of this year and that we are really facing a crisis. It's really a crisis in public education that's generalized, but particularly for us here in San Francisco Unified, vacancies are very high. The cost of living, which affects not only educators, but our students, our families, is very high. Um, and, you know, and we ourselves as a relatively new leadership for the union, uh, we're in our third year of leadership, uh, we felt that we needed to do a contract campaign that greatly expanded our engagement with the members. And that's what we really focused on. As a union, we have a goal for increasing our power, um, working people's power through solidarity and through high member engagement. And so we focused the whole campaign on that. And the first step we took was to engage with the members and find out what was the biggest priority for them. Um, not surprisingly, honestly, uh, the biggest priority for everyone was getting a race, like with the high cost of living and with just like really challenging conditions. When vacancies are high post pandemic, where we're seeing a lot of challenges for our students, um, just in terms of being able to get enough food, have enough housing, all that comes in and affects their learning conditions, right? And then you have vacancies. You don't have enough paraeducators in the room. You're covering for teachers' classrooms um, because they're not there, right? And so you're taking your preparation period and you're in the, in another teacher's classroom. Like it's all very difficult. And in the midst of that, to not have enough money to live on, <laughs> and we can talk more about that because I think that was one of our biggest wins, um, was really looking at, at increasing the the pay for educators. And it's not just teachers, like you said, Rachel, which is really critical. So our bargaining team looked through all of our salary schedules. And, you know, we have people making $17 an hour who don't even have a full seven to eight hour work day. Um, we have paraeducators who have been working here for 30 years and they're still walking away with $26,000, $28,000 a year, which you cannot live on in San Francisco. So we focused on making meaningful and equitable raises through the mechanisms I spoke about high member participation and building a higher level of solidarity amongst all the different people represented by the union. I love that. I really do love that because it's the people who make up the union, right? Right, right. So I, I think Natalie, you, you raised this point around um, high membership engagement and I think it's it's crucial because people often see in the news these massive victories especially most recently around UAW the Teamsters educator unions and and many many other contract fights across the country but don't necessarily have an appreciation largely because the media doesn't cover uh, how the contract was won don't have an appreciation for what it took to get there could you speak a little bit to what what did that high membership engagement look like? You all constructed a massive bargaining team that couldn't have been easy to bring so many dozens of people in the room and build unity. Uh, tell us a little bit about what happened under the hood. Yeah, absolutely. And I love this question because it's true. Like you get snippets from the outside, you can see a little bit. But like what really happens on the inside is a lot. <laughs> it takes a lot of dedication, a lot of thoughtfulness. And uh, UESF educators just 
really committed themselves to to an important contract struggle. And I want to go backwards a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like we won the agreement on October 21st at six o'clock in the morning. So our bargaining team had stayed overnight for 13 hours on their second bargain of the week, right? And so this is educators. We bargain after school. We do not release folks because we have such a big team. So we started at 5 p.m. on a Thursday after a full workday. 100 people plus were in that room. And when we ended at 6 a.m., 50 people were still in that room. I mean, that many educators staying in the room just speaks to the commitment. But everyone took a short break, 6 a.m., you got to be back at work. We all went back to work. Every single one of us went back into work the next day, um, which which is like just a high level of dedication and commitment to our students, mm-hmm. which was a, a theme throughout this entire thing. But if you go backwards, the reason that we even had that moment and we were able to win that agreement is because just a week earlier, 3,300 members of UESF had come out to one high school to vote on our strike authorization. And we had, we had been, I know we'd been months and months of bargaining with the district. It had been a very challenging bargain. We initially started trying to push them to finish the deal before the school year ended, because we felt that educators should know what they're coming back to in August. We started in August and we wanted everyone to know, okay, we're going to come back to a raise. We're going to come back to better working conditions. And we weren't able to do that because the real obstacle was the disorganization of the district management itself. Mm. Like their lead bargainer, their lead negotiator quit in June. Wow. And so they had to put together a whole new team and that's who we faced in August. Right. And none of that slowed us down, um, but it definitely slowed the bargain down. Um, And the members understood every single step of the way what was happening. So when they came out in those large numbers for strike authorization, and I should say we have a little bit of a different system. Um, Many unions vote once on strike authorization. We vote twice. Mm. So we vote to authorize the leadership to call a strike vote. And then we have the strike vote. We we voted to authorize. um, And the 3,300 members that came out, uh, 96% of them voted yes authorize us to give a strike it was a mandate to get a good deal it was a mandate that told the bargaining team go and do what you need to do because we are ready to back you up and if you need us to come out and take collective action we're willing to do it Um, and we felt that we had to really win a deal Um, and we did and the deal we won just so you all know uh, the initial package the district had offered us was 35 million dollars and we walked away with a $186 million compensation package. Wow. Yeah, it was, wow. It was crazy. Um, and we focused that compensation package on what I said earlier. I just want to repeat it. Meaningful and equitable raises. We made sure that paraeducators will no longer make less than $30 an hour. That Some of them are, are going to experience 80% raises when these raises are implemented. The average raise for certificated educators who who generally make more money, we're salaried, we're not hourly employees, um, is about 13%. But for our lowest paid educators, it's almost 20%. So folks are getting a significant raise, but the way we organized that raise was to make sure everyone got one, but those who needed the most really did get a bigger bump. 
Wow. I mean, that's that's amazing. And yeah. I'm sure the thousands of educators in UESF feel feel very good about it and feel a sort of sense of confidence coming out of the fight. Um, just speaking to the to the bargaining committee, um, could you tell us how, how large was it again? Yeah, so we did something a little different. I'll get to the number. I promise. Yeah. I'm not trying to hold back. But but um, we when we did that bargaining survey I told you about and really went to the members and asked them, we tied participation in the bargaining mm. survey to having a site choose a member to sit on the bargaining team. So instead of just appointing a 15 or 20 person team, we had a six weeks where this bargaining structure, this bargaining survey was out. It was out at the site and that was the only way you could get it. And if your site hit 85%, which is a very high expectation, then you could select someone as a site to sit on the bargaining team. So um, 65 sites completed that 85%, which was huge. It was really big for us. We have about 121 sites. So it was more than half the sites did this incredible completion of the survey, generated a person to sit on it. And then what we did is we looked at who was coming to sit on the team from the sites, and we added in and appointed additional folks. So for example, we represent substitutes. Substitutes are not site-based, so they were not generated mm. through that site-based process. So we additionally appointed substitutes to sit on the bargaining team. We ended up with a bargaining team of about 70 people. Initially, we also had a contract action team that was about 20 to 25 people. But um, at a certain point in the bargain, we realized that uh, we wanted that structure to also be bigger. So we almost tripled the size of our contract action team to 65 people. And we invited them all to sit in on bargaining optionally. So we initially started with a 70-person team, very consistently stayed with that. But um, in the sort of second phase of the bargain, at the end of the summer and beginning of the fall, we invited another 60 people to join us in the room. So at any given time in bargaining over the course of the fall, you would have 100 or plus members sitting in on the bargaining. Wow. It is <laughs> That's awesome. I had to get a big room, I'm sure. And you were sitting across yeah, from well, how many people on the district side? Well, they they varied. Like I said, their lead negotiator quit. It was a, it was a tough tough bargain for them. Tough. I'd say at any time their tops they had fifteen at the most. Damn! Um, wow. And just so, like just you can kind of picture it. We met in the boardroom, so it's like considered kind of district territory, but it didn't matter because the entire boardroom was full of UESF members all wearing their red shirts already. And it was the most disciplined team I've ever seen. Like we, I mean, we, we functioned on these agreements. It was really great the way it was structured. Um, it gave us a really great way to, to have intense internal debate and also come together and really support the work of the whole team as a team. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it was it's hard to kind of explain what the feeling was like in that room um, because you have almost a hundred educators sitting there listening to management and y'all know how management talk. Like mm -hmm. they just say the dumbest thing sometimes, but everyone was super disciplined. The only people who talked are our lead negotiator and myself occasionally. And, you know, like people, and then we would bring people in, right? So educators would come and give testimonies and talk about their experience and why the proposal we had was important. And I remember this one moment where the lead negotiator made this statement. 
And um, the statement was that paraeducators are, are not teaching classes. They're not supposed to be. They do not have a credential. They're not supposed to be alone with the kids teaching a class, right? They can do mm -hmm. supervision. They can do one-on-ones. They can do different things, but they don't take on the classroom. And it was the only moment where our discipline even broke a little because the statement was so vastly wrong. Like we all know because of the experience of the workers that that's actually happening to paraeducators. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be happening, but they were being placed in those positions. It's illegal. And they were still being placed in those positions. And you could hear just like the groan of the whole thing, the whole, like, you just be like, mm -mm, that is not what's happening. And he had to, he was like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. Like he had to verbally acknowledge the entire team and be like, oh, maybe we should check on that because apparently I'm incorrect. You know, it was like, like the team's entire environment, set the environment, mm -hmm. you know, it was awesome. You could feel the power in the room. That's so awesome to hear. Um, you know, and I'm sure with thousands of workers in the union that there's many new people, right, who maybe haven't been through a fight like this before. But we know that major fights can really have a huge impact on on people who become fighters, who, who get involved with the struggle and see the fruits of their labor, their collective labor, labor in particular. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit to what effect this fight had on people um, who got involved in it, whether it was, you know, on the bargaining committee, um, you know, people who had never been involved in this type of struggle before in this type of way or building reps, really just people in general. Are there any cool stories yeah. to share or, you know, whatever? Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of like a specific story um, and I might, I might come up with one as we're talking, but there is a generalized shift that you can, that's palpable, that you can feel in our organization walking off this mm. contract struggle. Like we had a celebration for the bargaining team yesterday, right? And one of the teachers who is a high school teacher, he teaches in a very small high school here. Um, and, and I, you know, I was like, you did it congratulations, you know, like we were just sort of talking a little bit celebratory. And he was like, it is so hard to understate how different things feel now. Like at my site with us, like we've done something together and we did it together. And y'all and he meant, you know, the leadership set up this structure so that we could do that. Right. And I think that's the, that was the, like in general, it feels like we went from, um, you know, a pretty active union that was moving, that was trying to do things, but didn't have the level of structure available so that you really could plug in where you needed to, right? And so this 70-person bargaining team, I would say 30 to 40 of them went from like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. I don't really know what I'm getting into uh, you know, but I've never been in the room before. And so I want to see. Mm. So like, I am a leader in this organization over the course of 10 months, right? And they see themselves and you can talk when you talk to them, you can see they see themselves as leaders in the organization. They took responsibility for winning some major wins. The raises were the biggest point, but it wasn't the only point we won either, right? And they take responsibility for that process. But because it wasn't just what was happening in the room, it was also what was happening amongst the whole membership. You know what we call the field or mm -hmm. it's always a question of organizing because those things were so deeply tied together. Those people now see themselves as 
sort of leaders in that as well, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just, I'm a good bargainer, I can write a good proposal. It's, I'm actually engaged with however many people at my site. At the largest high schools, we have 150 to 200 members. At the smallest, you know, the elementaries, we have 10, 15, 30 members. They were leading those groups of people in motion to support something we'd all come together behind. And there's a lot of power in that shift. And um, so I'm trying to think of like specific examples, but it it feels like in the different areas of the union, when you go and talk to people, you hear that a lot, you know, like I just didn't know. Or like when um, I told you we made that addition of the contract action team into the room and one of our uh, site leaders, we call them UBRs or union building representatives, was a CAT team member, a contract action team member. And she'd never been in bargaining and she came into bargaining one session and I saw her the next day at the site and she went, I cannot believe them. <laughs> like she was just so struck by how management was. She was like, I heard what you guys said to me. I heard it, but I didn't really understand it. And then I saw it last night and now I know what to say to the members at the site. You know, it was like that sort of like really becoming part of the process was key. It was um transformation and consciousness I think it was also a transformation in seeing yourself as the actor right mm-hmm. like as the leader there is not some leadership that's somewhere else that's making all these decisions it is the membership that is in the leadership of the struggle and you could see that play out in people's and even how they like talked you know from the beginning of the of the bargaining team and how they talked about the struggle or their responsibility to the end you could see that shift happen Yeah, that I mean, it's one thing to tell people in organizing in general what how they should interpret their experiences. But it's a complete different thing to be face to face with the boss and actually go through that process and see like, wow, actually, this person isn't my friend at all. Mm. Um, And I think it's it's really a beautiful thing, that transformation of consciousness, thinking about a group of educators that is primarily a group of women workers, um, seeing themselves as leaders, because so often we're just kicked down, right? But I mean, we know educators are are literally leading our entire life, like our communities, you know, our (laughs) world. Um, But it's another thing to actually feel empowered and feel that sense of leadership, um, you know, beyond just the classroom, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a crucial point that you made around the the point around responsibility, because I, I think we see far too often in contract fights. And I think it's no it's no fault of uh, a worker who thinks this way because it's it's based on their experiences with their union um, and their participation or lack thereof. But uh, when someone fills out a survey that says that asks like what are your top priorities to fill it out and conclude okay well I hope the bargaining committee can go get this for me, but to tie the representation on the bargaining committee in addition to appointed positions to survey completion signals to the entire membership that we're all responsible for the strength of the contracts we we win. It's not just 10 people in a room, 20 people in a room, or even 100 people in a room. It's going to be determined not only by uh, our strategy at the table, but arguably even more so our level of organization in the field, so to speak. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and 
I, I, th- I have this example. It's an interesting example of how this like plays out um, because when you get this ball rolling, right. Mm-hmm. And you really start engaging in, um, in creating structures that allow people to engage fully. And then they feel responsible for something that, that um, it sort of builds upon itself, mm-hmm. right. It creates another level that maybe, you know, and so we, we, in the bargain, there was one thing that I would say was, um, I'm not sure if it was like a weakness of our struggle. It was a weakness of the system in which we work that we were not able to really fully address the working conditions of special education educators. Mm. We were forced into a compromise because we know it's difficult. We hear from our educators all the time how difficult it is. We know that the state government doesn't fully fund even their promises to special education, right? So like, and this is happening across the state where special education is a primary focus for improvement, for increased wages. I mean, other locals have won stipends or or higher wages for special education educators, noting the additional sort of uh, work that goes in to that type of education work, right? And it was a high priority for our membership as well. And because the district has been so poorly managed for so many decades, we were not able to even get the proper information out of them. Like we had to fight with them even to get information so that we could start like making proposals that were effective. So what we agreed to do was do a working group with a reopener in February. And one of the criticisms of this, which I think is a valid criticism, and we should be able to talk about those things, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, everything doesn't have to be rosy all the time. Like, like one of the valid criticisms was, well, if we are in a reopener on one particular issue, what's going to happen in the field? Mm. What's going to happen mm. with the contract campaign that we know was the factor that won us this agreement, right? Are we going to be weaker? This is what members were talking about amongst themselves and with the elected leadership. Like, how are we going to make sure we still make a win for special education educators if it's after the larger contract struggle, right? Which means that we've actually done a good job. Like, Mm -hmm. we've done a good job of interacting and communicating and engaging about what really wins the struggle. Everyone in our union knows it's not the perfect argument. It's not the perfect proposal. It's the strength of the collective. And so now we have to focus the strength of the collective on winning special education educators, working conditions improvements, right? But um, but I guess I, I just thought of that when you were talking because it's like, that's a key um, dynamic in a contract struggle like this is how important the organizing is and mm-hmm. where your membership is at. Yeah. And I think you had mentioned around this point of, it not just being about what's in writing in the tentative agreement by the end of the contract fight, but what's the state of the union from the start to the finish and were we successful in building up the level of organization? I think you had mentioned to me that there were coming out of the contract fight, there was a hundred percent, a hundred percent of sites had building reps. Is that right? Yeah. So um, over the course of the last, two years, we put a lot of focus on making sure that we had elected site representation. And we we expanded even our view of what a site is, because we have the, the school, which is the primary work site, 
But our folks, like like I think Rachel mentioned in the beginning, some of the job titles mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. represent, they don't all work at a school site, right? Like there are certain offices that social workers and counselors work out of, or some people have multiple sites, right? They might be more connected. So we, we've expanded even our view of what work site is, right? And then we focused on making sure that every single one of those had uh, elected representatives. And when we started with that survey I told you about last year, we we did not have 100% representation. Like we were in a situation where we were only communicating that survey through site representation and certain sites never got it until it went out as an email in the seventh week, right? Mm. And But what we saw that was was a way to give us information about who wasn't there so that we could then go and target that area. So I'll give you a specific mm-hmm. example because I know that can sound like googly gobbledygook, but you know, our early education sites did not have site representation. So they didn't really get into the survey until it got emailed in and out. And then they contacted us and they were like, what the hell? Why were we, why weren't we part of this? Like, mm-hmm. why didn't we get it? And we said, well, you're not organized. You haven't elected a site representation. We don't have the contact person we need. And now they're all there. Mm. now and we brought them into the bargaining team now they all have site reps now they all you know like now if we send out another survey they're going to get it Mm -hmm. we had early education you know and when they came to us we said you didn't get it but we'll still put you on the bargaining team because we want early ed on the bargaining team right and so they were in the bargaining team and that kind of built its own dynamic where more early ed people could come in or be connected right and so that, and that happens all across the union, but only happens if you do it that way, right? Mm-hmm. You can't manufacture it. It has to be like, people have to want to be part of it. Uh, and I think what, what that sort of initial piece did was create a way for people to think about it and want to be, and, and then go and mm-hmm. do it. I don't know if that makes sense, but it was definitely helped us hit that hundred percent representation. No, it does. I think it makes uh, a ton of sense. And I feel like this whole experience, I wish we had two hours to dig into all the details and stories. And, you know, I want to ask about the the craziest story of recruiting uh, a building rep and, and so many other questions that I think can be right. instructive to, to not only other educators and, and their contract fights that are coming up, but also to all workers who, who want to, you know, wage workplace fights, but, and build power on the job. But I do think I want to make a hard pivot into, uh, um, the question of looking forward, but before we go into looking forward, what was the craziest story from inside the bargaining room? The craziest day, what (laughs) happened? Tell us about it. There's so much. I mean, when you sit through 13 hours of a bargain, I think that produces your craziest moments, right? I mean, there were, there's so much to tell about all the different things. I'll tell you, can I tell a few moments? I know we don't have a ton of time, but I'll just put it in there. It's funny because I was like, I I, I can't go into all these questions, but this is like a crucial question. So I think we like, please. Yeah. It's your fault, not mine. Yeah. There there we go. It's true. Um, So, so, there was this one moment, and it's not crazy, but it was a more impactful moment, right? Um, where at, I think, I literally think it was 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And we uh, we had reached a point where we knew that the district team had made their final compensation offer. Like, they were not going any further. And I don't think they even, I mean, I think we pushed them further than they ever wanted to go. 
but also we knew there was no more. Like you mm -hmm. can't, you can't, you know, we're in public education. These are not corporations, you know, they're getting their money from somewhere and they have a limited bucket. You can't really push outside that bucket in a real way, right? So we all kind of got that in the middle of the night. Like it was insane. And, but we hadn't gotten the full package for paraeducators. Mm. And this one really critical piece was missing. Um, and I'm going to try and explain it as best I can, but we had gotten the flat minimum wage of $30, but then paraeducators have had steps in there, you know, so a year of service gets you an increase, right? Mm -hmm. That increase is about 4%. And it only happens for the first five years. And then there's another one at eight years and another one at 11 years. And um, the district wanted to flatten that out. So basically everyone went to 30 instead of everyone going to 30 and then with your steps. So some people could go to 37 this year. Like they wanted to just flatten it all out. And we didn't think that was the right thing to do. And it changed the character of the raise for paraeducators completely. And so uh, the team decided at 4 a.m. to go $1,000 down on the certificated weight raise in order to fund the paraeducator step. And that was like, for me, it still gives me chills to talk about it because the level of solidarity required for a group of higher paid workers to say, okay, we as a team do agree, we will take 9,000 instead of 10,000 in order to make sure that your hourly wages are really mm -hmm. equitable, right? And having the whole team come behind that and decide on that to me was like, extremely powerful, mm -hmm. extremely powerful. And it was also everything that night was crazy. I mean, people were falling asleep in the middle of debate. People mm -hmm. were asleep on a mattress in the hallway, you know, like, so it was all crazy. And I want to say one of the, some of those crazy things, but just that level of solidarity that at that early hour, after such a long bargain, you could make a decision with such dedication to like really meaningful and equitable raises, I thought was, was so impactful. So. That's one of my favorite stories. Wow, that that's beautiful. That's not even a crate. I mean, I guess it is kind of crazy. People sleeping on mattresses <laughs> in the hallways and wherever. But that's a that's a beautiful story. I'm glad that we got a chance to to ask you that. Um, we wanted to ask about the the next steps for UESF as well, right? If you want to dig into that a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, so we. We have been part of an alliance called the California Alliance for Community Schools for quite a number of years. Um, it's an alliance that, you know, community schools are a really important next step for public education. We said earlier about how, you know, the living conditions of our students impact both the working conditions of educators because teaching children who don't have enough to eat, right. teaching children who are in unstable housing situations, um, is really hard. <laughs> yeah. You have to get, you know, you, you, we all know this as humans, like it's hard to learn. It's hard to engage if you're hungry, mm -hmm. if you don't have a stable place to eat, all these things, right? Um, and if you don't have access to certain services. So community schools are really an, a, a result of um, the fight on the part of educators allied with our communities to win schools that meet people's needs, not just in the question of like what you need to learn next which educators know how to deal with, right? But so for instance, my daughter attends a community school and that school has a, a shelter hmm. on place at this campus where families of SFUSD, primarily that school, but not only that school, um, can sleep at night 
if they need a place to stay. Wow. Um, and that, yeah, I mean, that's what community schools do is they assess what people need. My, my son goes to a school that is considering, has become a community school and is going through the beginning process. And, you know, one of the things that came up is, can we provide educational services to our recently arrived families who would benefit from that? Mm. So not just teaching the child, mm. but teaching the whole family, right? That's what community schools do. So the California Alliance for Community Schools is, has come together around the idea of community schools and has become something, I think, more. Um, and the major urban and some not so urban districts across California, our contracts all expire in 2025. And what this means is there's an opportunity in 2025 to focus not only on the district by district struggle, which are always limited. You're limited to whatever that district has to offer. So the question of state funding and even federal funding, but primarily state funding for public education. What will public education in California look like? And in order to do that, we need fully funded schools. And mm -hmm. those schools need to be organized on the basis of you know, providing excellent special education services, of meeting the needs of our black students, of social justice and racial justice. These are some of the questions that come up in the Alliance um, and particularly on community schools. So our, we do have, you know, we're already starting to think and organize and plan um, for campaign in 2025. And we're gonna build another bargaining team and it's gonna be an even bigger bargaining team. <laughs> um, and we're gonna continue to build upon the foundation that was set in this last contract struggle, which we've dug into. Um, but you know, there's so much more to do and, to, and so much more for us to sort of um, explore and add to a set of tactics and strategies that we're already using that folks are familiar with. Um, but we do feel like this is the beginning of something, really not the end. And that's our next step along the way. Awesome. Before we wrap up, I just have one last question for you, Natalie. It feels like teachers have really been, teachers and educators have really been at the forefront of some of the most serious fights in the labor movement over the past couple of years. I mean, starting with West Virginia. Um, and, you know, I mean, since COVID, since the, the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, um, it's really... I mean, we knew teachers have been running things for a while, right? But since the pandemic, it's like, oh, wow, teachers are actually, like, doing so much, like, you know, whatever. Um, but why do you think this is? Why do you think teachers are really at the forefront? Yeah. Um, well, I think if you go back and you look at West Virginia, and we really should acknowledge Chicago even before that, mm -hmm. right? Like, um, the Chicago educators, and now they have a whole mayor, in the mayorship, Brandon Johnson, but, but, you know, they really, um, I think pioneered a, um, I don't know if it's a strategy or a strategical orientation that I think has shifted educators ability to be in the leadership, like you talked about, which is, you know, um, as organizations that represent education workers as unions, we also can be in partnership and not a transactional partnership, but a genuine partnership with those who we know the best, our students and their families and their communities. And considering educators as part of the community and our organization, our collective organization, really as a tool to fight for that, has, I think, enabled educators who, like you said earlier, primarily women, most of the field is educated, like 
uh, it becomes more male heavy the higher you get, which says something about our system. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the the educator workers are mostly women. Um, and also, you know, like we have a divide amongst ourselves too. Like our paraeducators tend to be more women of color, immigrant women, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's shifting a lot even within the teaching population, but it's still a dynamic we have to deal with. But these, but uh, our organizations as such um, have, and in West Virginia, they did, taken up not just the call of our own um, improvement, but the community as a whole, mm. right? And so West Virginia, when they won, they won for all public sector employees. They won a raise for the entire, all public sector employees in West Virginia. The next year, they beat, uh, beat back a charter school attempt. They beat back a voucher attempt. And they won an increase in the budget for public education, right? So like like that that sort of, in it, and then it just spread like wildfire from West Virginia into Arizona and Chicago and LA and Oakland and everywhere, right? But part of that was that the underfunding of public education as a central democratic institution in the United States meant that we were all feeling that pain and there was nothing else to do but to fight. And we started fighting. And now, you know, and now we're taking that fight to new levels, I think, and building upon the experiences and the victories and the defeats of the last four or five years. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Natalie, for for joining us on the show on the line. It was really great to talk through more in detail about how this uh, this contract was won. We hope to have you on a lot more before 2025 uh, to talk about the strategy and the tactics and not just the big bargaining team, but the massive bargaining team. I think really this uh, <laughs> this show, I think it's worth mentioning the reason why we launched it is to is so that people can read about these contract fights in the news and 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 feel positive about it, but also take all the right lessons away they can learn how it was achieved and then implement it in their own workplaces uh the the best of the best practices and work to overcome challenge common challenges together uh and i hope that people got a lot out of the uh the discussion and and again we'll we'll make sure to have you on uh soon and i i also hope that uesf and the other educator unions in california um think about you know heeding the call of sean fain and and, and lining up their contracts for 2028. A special day May in 2028. 2028. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you, Natalie. Thank you for having me on. It was great. So next we're joined by Desmond Fonseca, who's a graduate student researcher and teaching assistant in the history department at UCLA, a member of UAW 2865, United Auto Workers, and a member of the steering committee of Western States Organizing for Power. Welcome, Desmond. Thanks for joining on the line. Hey, I'm glad I'm honored to be here. So the UAW just last Thursday was the latest and perhaps the largest and most significant union to call for a ceasefire amid Israel's campaign against Palestine. Uh, That list includes United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers, or UE, the American Postal Workers Union, and UPAT, or International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. Des, what led to the passage of 
the resolution uh, by the UAW, and what do you feel is the significance of it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the resolution and you know, seeing the video of our, our leaders in front of the White House was was really incredible to see. And it came out about um, a week ago. Um, we were in a position where you know many labor leaders were would have been you know afraid to take the kind of positions that that we've taken recently. But there's been an upsurge in uh, militant organizing, and we've seen that in in our own union, in my own union, in 2865, um, where we were you know embarked on a strike campaign that culminated last year. Yeah, and this isn't the first time that UAW has taken a strong and progressive stance on an international issue, right? Brandon Mencia, the UAW uh, Region 9A director, actually stated that, and I'll quote, from opposing fascism in World War II to mobilizing against apartheid South Africa and the Contra War, the UAW has consistently stood for justice across the globe. Can you tell us a little bit about that history? Yeah, for sure. And again, there's there's so much to to get into, but even on on this issue, right, the Palestinian freedom struggle. So I believe in 1975, the UAW early on, you know, divested um, from Israeli held bonds. And then I also believe just a few years later, um, another apartheid state, um, South Africa, which which the UAW had um, some holdings in. And President UAW um, announced, I, I believe, in 1978, um, you know. 12 years before um, the defeat, or around a decade before the defeat of the apartheid state in South Africa, that UAW would no longer um, hold loans or, or, or capital in banks that, that did business with um, the apartheid state. So, so there's there's a long history here. Um, and it goes beyond UAW, of course, with locals like um, the ILWU, um, even some, you know, some locals in uh, SEIU, I believe, Local 1199, which took stances against the Vietnam War, took stances against apartheid um, in Israel, in Palestine, in South Africa, um, to the effect that this is actually, you know, an internationally um, recognized fact, the stances that locals and leadership in the UAW have taken over the years that the working class movement can and should take in the United States. I believe, you know, Nelson Mandela in his first trip to the United States um, after he was released from, from prison, being a political prisoner for so many decades, actually visited Local 600 in Dearborn, Michigan to UAW Local 600 to, to pay homage and respect to the working class people of the United States who had for so long stood in solidarity with the people of South Africa, with the workers in South Africa, um, as we do for the workers. Um, in Palestine, uh, the workers in, in Central America who are subject to, to horrible violence by uh, U.S. funded contra wars in, in the region. So um, there is still, you know, a clear uh, push by by workers, ranked by workers and by leadership, um, which we're seeing now to to really stake a claim um, in the in the international arena and stake a claim against the ruling class, which exploits, you know, workers here in the United States and also workers abroad. Yeah, just to that point, Des, I mean, I think one of the one of the things that was so significant about the resolution and not only passing the resolution, but to promote it in, in the way that the UAW did to announce it in front of the White House, I believe there was a uh, United Electrical Radio Machine Worker, UE worker, who, who was on uh, a hunger strike actually at the time that the the press conference was held uh, and, and dozens of other union members and, and leaders who were present was was the way it was it was it was announced uh, and promoted, and that there is also a, a committee that was formed by the international exec uh, executive board to learn uh, to study the history of boycotts, divestments, and sanctions, the movement 
that was launched by Palestinians to to apply pressure on the Israeli government um, and to determine how to proceed as far as the UAW's uh, role in or their membership employment at defense contractors who who supply arms to to Israel. So it goes beyond uh, a statement, and and I I think it's interesting because for um, over the last several weeks, the the demand for a ceasefire has become entered more and more into the mainstream. Statistics now show that a majority of people in the United States support a ceasefire. But to me, at least, it wasn't until the the UAW uh, announced this, adopted this resolution, um, that it became so clear how isolated the position of just continued conflict and and this genocidal bombing campaign against Palestinians uh, was so unpopular. Like two days after October 7th, um, Biden had an address to the nation you know, kind of bumbling away and was like, we need, uh, was was advocating for something like a $100 billion aid package, the two countries that would get the most significant chunks of money from that package would be Israel and Ukraine. And mm-hmm. I think the, the day later, uh, the day after, Sean Fain had a uh, stand-up <coughs> strike announcement. And I'm not sure if... Uh, the UAW put workers out on strike that day. Uh, it was one of the Fridays, but he mentioned there's always money for war, but there's never enough money for the working class. And I was like, damn, Sean Fain, okay, like, are you are you really subtweeting Joe Biden right now and sending money to <laughs> Israel and Ukraine? Uh, but I think some of these like statements, it, it's beyond a statement. It depending, I mean, if the resolution is used as a tool, which well, it's not just a piece of paper. It can be highly educational for so many members who may not know what to think about it, but through education and, and some of these popular analogies that you're describing, right? Like the same uh, people in Congress who were uh, who who were all in the pockets of the auto companies and, and promoting all of the company propaganda against the auto workers suddenly are, you know, they're they're saying there is enough money. In fact, there's not just uh, a few hundred million dollars or or the few billion dollars that was the cost of the contract, but over a hundred billion dollars to to send to send for war. What we are used to, like you were talking about, around the labor movement, mainly being focused, uh, especially in the last few decades, mainly being focused on workplace issues, on bread and butter issues, so to speak, on on wages and benefits. Some of that is starting to to peel back. Could you speak a little bit to that and and what it means for the labor movement in the in the coming months and years? Yeah, of course, of course. You know, and and we even in our local, we hear you know some workers making some allusions to these arguments, right? And, and we have conversations with them to explain why that is not the case, why we can't just focus on wages, benefits, rights uh, that are directly, directly, directly tied to our workplace, right? In a in a very clear manner that everyone just, you know, first glance can see. Um, and we have very successful conversations um, with these workers, but to again, speak a little bit about the history, like the most uh, effective um, radical back in the days of, you know, the, the, the original CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, um, always took stances 
um, on political issues beyond just just wages. And these were some of the the, the unions which are winning the the strongest contracts, organizing some of the most militant strikes. So it is it is a long history, a long tradition um, in the labor movement in the United States and across the world, of course, um, to not just focus on you know these these isolated wage gains, um, which are of course very important, very important for workers um, if unions are increasing are improving the, the workplace conditions of their workers and what are they doing. But at the same time, I think the the struggle in Palestine, uh, the ruling class's isolation uh, is a great example of why we must, as unionists, as labor organizations, uh, trade unions, take on these struggles. When you see the, the U.S. Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate uh, voting 413 to 1, um, to equate, you know, anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, which is a lie. And they know it's a lie. When you see the Senate, the House, the executive branch, um, you know, bending over backwards, falling over themselves to grant tens of billions of dollars for Israel to commit and continue its, its, its genocide and its atrocities against the Palestinian people. When you see that and you compare it to the fact that, what is it, two-thirds Nearly three fourths of Americans are calling for a ceasefire, recognize who the aggressor, um, who the real source of violence is in Palestine, and that it's the Israeli apartheid state. It highlights the the real tensions and the real disagreements between the ruling class and actually, you know, the people of the United States, the mass of the United States. And that's incredibly important. That that's particularly important because these same people who vote unanimously to conflate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism to commit to sending tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars for war, you know, whether it's in, in Palestine or, or elsewhere, are the same people who dictate our labor laws, are the same people who, you know, continue to upheld, uphold um, the acts like the Taft-Hartley Act, right, or any other, you know, union-busting laws that gets passed through the halls of Congress that the people of the United States don't work, uh, don't want, you know. The same people who refuse to grant um, federal minimum wage increases. And we recognize that all these different issues are entangled. And of course, you know, workers, we don't just go to work and we clock out. But workers have children, workers have families who need you know, education, who need health care, who need groceries and gas to be affordable. And none of that is possible because our government and this ruling class is committed to sending billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars for war while they give nothing to the working class. Um, and, you know, what we face with, uh, what we face as as workers, as unionists against our employers is a very similar struggle, if not the same struggle. It is the same struggle um, that the working class wages or, or ought to wage against, against the ruling class for a genuinely worker and people-centered society. And I, I don't think, I think, you know, people are waking up to this and, and the struggle in Palestine is, is a clear example um, of this divide. Um, between the ruling class and the working class, which has always been there, to be clear. But this just reveals what many of us have already known to be true. I know that's right. Desmond, thank you so much for joining us on the line. You have really contributed so much. Thank you. Thank you both. All right, that's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to the first episode of On The Line. We're thrilled about this new project and hope that you can like, share, and follow us at at Labor On The Line on all streaming and social media platforms. This is a bi-weekly show, so tune in again in a couple weeks on Friday. 
And as always, whether we're on the assembly line, on the phone line, or on the picket line, you'll always find us on the line. 